falling apart. And uh, we say something like, he needs your help. Who will volunteer to help him? Uh, he rarely ever astonishes us. He pretty much stays within the bounds we think that he should be within. And if we pray just right, he'll do what we tell him to do. That is, if we've been up to snuff and if we've been logical. And if we pray just right, we can get him to do a miracle. And uh, we, we tend to uh, understand him after the flesh, don't we? At least I have. And he's a, he's a God who serves us, kind of like a cosmic errand boy or a, a global genie, kind of, that'll do whatever we say. And we want to make God into our image. So it's a puny concept of God that's totally, absolutely, biblically unworthy of anything that he really is. And we need to see him biblically and to have our minds blown out. And I believe tonight God wants to do just that. You see, this is the way most Americans conceptualize God. He's, he's in our box. He's in our denominational or human thought box. I want to ask you something. Who controls the world? I mean, that's an easy answer, God, of course. But you see, you look around and you see everything in the papers and you say, uh, well, it looks like if you look at the papers that the world is just out of control. And the evolutionists will tell you that, this, that, uh, that nobody's in control, that mankind just happened. I mean, from goo to you by way of the zoo. There you go. Uh, there you go. Just kind of from amoeba to me. There we go. And, uh, and they try to get us to believe that. I have no trouble just thinking that some of them descended from monkeys. Not ascended, but descended. Uh, but you see, it, it all depends on how, how you answer that question. If you walk by faith or sight. I mean, you've got to figure it out. Are you, are, are you walking by faith or sight? He works all things, the Bible says, after the counsel of his own will. He is in charge. If God is in control, then why is there so much evil? We always say that. And man seems alarmed, you see. But you see, if you read Revelation 4 and 5, you'll see how alarmed God is about it. You'll see how alarmed he is. There's no panic in heaven. In fact, it says, here's a scripture to write down. First Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. Listen to this. Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Don't you rule over all the nations and all the kingdoms of all, all the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? You see, his will is irresistible. His will is irreversible. And you need to understand that tonight, that God is God. In fact, this one's really good. Acts 17, 26. Just write these down. You never get there. I'll be gone before you get there. Uh, Acts 17, 26, but listen to what it says. Listen, concerning the nations, concerning geography, it says, and, and all men, he has determined, it says, Acts 17, 26, he's determined before the times appointed the boundaries of all the nations. That means that nothing such as an invasion into Kuwait or the changing of the Iron Curtain countries, that's not something that man has decided at Malta or wherever it is. God decided that. He had it marked out. He knows when you take an acre off somebody's land and he had it appointed before it ever happened. That's what the Bible says. And so you see, what's happening in the world? I'll tell you what's happening. The world is in cold-blooded rebellion against God. And we're, we're trying to be out of God's control while acting religious, while we're in darkness and in sin. There is no battle 
between God and the devil today. I'll tell you that. The, ba- the battle's decided. The devil's defeated. The battle today is uh, between our soul and God and sin. That's where the battle is. It's a battle of unbelief. Sin is being judged by God. It's been determined, and it's all settled. The kingdoms of this world are being shaken, and God is transferring what we're looking at to look beyond the visible to the invisible and to see that which cannot be shaken. It says in the Scriptures that kings and rulers and princes are less than grasshoppers in His sight. In fact, it says that the king's heart is in the Lord's hand just like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wants. I'm telling you, the problem with America is not in the White House. It's in God's house. God can turn a king's heart just like this. He's taken some of the most wicked kings in Scripture and just turned them around like that. He can end their life just like that. He can put a godly man wherever he wants to just like that. But God gives leaders like nations deserve. When the, when the people aren't listening. And so we need to see it and understand that, that, that God has an everlasting covenant of grace and we need to understand who he is. Now, I would con- say to you that, that we don't see God as he is. The, the human mind, when you hear sermons about him and listen to tapes and read, here's what happens. Let me just take it out of the scriptures for a minute. And let's just take a person that you've heard tapes of, Christian tapes, or on the radio. You listen to a favorite preacher or something like that. The human mind will always supply its own ideas of what someone is, looks like or what they are like uh, until we're shown reality. I had a roommate in seminary who fell in love over the telephone. This girl really liked him until she saw him. And then she thought for some reason that he turned into a toad. And, uh, and she abandoned all thought of any further relationship. Well, maybe you've heard somebody's voice on the radio. And it's like, hello out there in radio land. I mean, it's, it, it's some big, deep voice and it sounds wonderful. And you say, oh, it's, and see what happens. The more you hear that person, you begin to supply in your mind a picture. Is that true? I mean, do you do this? And, and you begin to say, oh, they're tall, big muscles, wavy hair. And, you know, he's just the kind of guy that I admire, you know, and you see him. And uh, over a period of time, you become so used to this idea, this image in your mind, that it is accepted every time you hear him. You, you can see the same person. I mean, has this happened just to me? And then one day they have a banquet in town. And you go to the banquet and you, and you say, oh, tell me, where is Brother Downspout? And, uh, uh, and you're looking for the guy, you know? And all of a sudden you see this little, uh, just exact opposite. I mean, people come up to me all the time and say, my, we thought you'd be taller and bald and fat or something. I mean, you know, and, and they're just entirely the opposite. When the real person is seen, we're reluctant to accept it. You say, that's not that person. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Uh, and, and maybe it's so... Big a contrast that you won't even accept it. That couldn't be that person. I just refuse to understand it. And we, it, it seems so odd because we're so used to thinking of that person one way. And let me tell you something. We do the same thing with God. We read our Bible with a certain mindset. We hear a sermon from a certain group of people or this group of people. And we have an image in our mind. Job had done that, the best man on earth. He said, listen, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now I see you. 
and everything got straight. He began to hate his own ideas and hate his own life, and God turned his captivity. Failure to know the true God of the Bible will leave us far short in every area. It'll, it, it will leave us man-centered, and that's what's going on all around us. Because we don't know the fear of the Lord and we don't know who he is, we're planning our worship service around lost people. We're planning our worship service around being sensitive to people who have not a clue what God is like. And it's, it's totally backwards. A man shouldn't feel comfortable in a worship service if he doesn't know God. He should feel loved but not comfortable. The great work of the Holy Ghost is to open our hearts and minds to show us God as he really, really is. If we don't see him as, we is, as he is, we'll be earthbound, we'll be prisoners of, the, of time, we'll be feelings addicted, and we'll make God into our image, our own concepts, our own ideas, and we'll make him serve us and be our little errand boy, man-made ideas. And this, once we see him as he is, it's shattering. It's shattering. But it's also glorious. And it's overwhelming, and it will totally change everything. So God wants to lift our perspective tonight to show us himself as he is. Because, you see, my concept of God is the most important thing about me, and you too. What you think of when you think of that term God, when you sing that hymn, holy, holy, holy. What you imagine, image, image, imagine in your mind when you think of God is the most important thing that it could ever be about anybody. So we got to have a perspective that is eternal. You see, we're too earthbound. We just, we're trying to fix man up for time instead of prepare them for eternity. Uh, not, not just a man thought out system. We got to be free from the blinders of time. And uh, so I'm going to take you on a journey tonight mentally. This is hard for guys because we don't like to think anymore. I may throw in a few sports stories just to keep you interested. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a picture with your mind, and I hope that it will blow your mind right out. I want you to go back in your mind. Before, before the Old Testament was written, we're going to panorama this. Before the Old Testament, before any of the Bible was written down, and then, okay, you got there. Go back before the flood. That's harder. Back before everything was destroyed in Noah's flood. Go back now before the Garden of Eden, back before God made man. That's hard. And go back now before God made angels, before he made the heavens and the earth, before he spoke and there was, let there be light. Go back to before the angels, before the world was created. Now, if you've been following me, you have a hard time getting back there. Because you see, something clicks back in there. But before anything else existed, I mean, you say, well, what's there? Nothing. Just God. Just God. There was nothing. No light, no darkness, no earth, no stars in space, no angels, no anything. Just God. Uh, the Lord himself. This is the Elohim in Genesis 1. 1. It says, in the beginning, Elohim. Elohim. It's a masculine plural for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there was eternal God who is love, who is truth, who is light. And uh, once there was nothing but him, he dwelt entirely alone. I can't get back there myself in my mind or verbiage to even describe it or try to. But he needed nothing else. Eternal glory. So he was glorious in all his own utterly transcendent, and he didn't need anything else. He chose out of himself to create, create 
uh, it added nothing to him. And so he spoke and it stood fast and was created. Of him and through him and to him are all things, it says. And by him all things consist, it says in Colossians. Time is just like a book to him. Like if you hold up your Bible, time is like a book to our Lord. He exists outside of time. He can open it at the back. He can open it at the front. He can open it anywhere. He knows it all at once. Time is only temporary to our eternal God. It's just a paperback even. It's not even a hardbound book to our God. And, and he knows the end from the beginning, it says. You getting tired yet? We hadn't even started. We hadn't even started. Listen to what Isaiah talks about, this great and mighty God. And in Isaiah 14, listen to what it says in Isaiah 14, talking about the power of God. Does this sound any doubt about it? Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn... God swore. He said, surely as I have thought it, it will come to pass. And as surely as I have purposed it, so will it stand. Verse 27, the Lord of hosts has purposed. There's that word again. Who can disannul his purpose? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? When God thinks it, when God purposes it, let me tell you, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. And he says something in Isaiah 46 along the same lines. Listen to Isaiah 46, verse 10. God, it's, uh, verse 9, Remember the former things of old. I am God. There is no one else. I am God. There is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, I tell you things that are not yet done and saying, all of my counsel will stand, and I'm going to do all my pleasure. It is a done deal. My life, past, present, and future, are all right now to him. I mean, there's no tomorrow to him. He looks at me. He looks at you. He sees the Apostle Paul, and all of our beings are right before him, and they are now to the great I Am. You see, that's because... The Bible uses words that describe God as, we call it, omniscient. Omniscient. That means he knows everything. All omniscient. Knowing all. Acts 15, verse 18. Listen to this. Acts 15, verse 18 says, For known unto God are all of his works from the beginning. From the beginning. That's why the Bible says he is the all-wise God. As we said, he's made the world and all that are in it. He gives life and breath to all things. And every little uh, anthill, every little tunnel, in every little termite place in the Amazon, every nest of every sparrow, every egg, every antenna that, that goes like this on bees that are looking for pollen, every horse's hair on the tails that swish, every little worm in, in a dying body out in the, in, the, in the jungle, wherever it is, God knows it and he keeps their atoms in perfect order. He knows exactly everything about it and he's never taken by surprise. Everything is naked and open before his eyes and he sees everything, every sparrow he knows, every snowflake, he's the architect. And everyone's different. He measures and knows their angle without effort. And every grain of sand, he shapes them and he knows just what they are. And they're all held together by the word of his power. Our thoughts, our activities, 
our hairs on our head, everything, our heartbeat. He could put a number underneath your lifeline and put that's how many times this person's heart has beat in their life and how many times it will beat. Every thought of every person he knows, they're right before him right now, not just those living, but every thought of every person of all the ages are right before his throat, uh, right before his throne. He knows the thought of every creature and they're all right there and he's not even confused. He's not even confused. You see, that's why David, when he saw this, he cried out in sheer and utter amazement when in Psalm 139, he writes these words. Listen to what he says. Psalm 139, I'll just read verses 2 to 4. He, he sees this and he cries out in complete and utter amazement. He says, you know my sitting down and my uprising. You understand my thoughts from what I think so far. You surround my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but, Lord, you know it all together. He is absolutely known by God. In Ezekiel, it says, I know the thoughts that come into your mind, every one of them. Ezekiel 11.5, he knows them all. And all at once. He's omniscient. But he's also omnipresent. That means he's not just all-knowing. Omnipresent means he is everywhere, all at once. There are no bounds on God. He cannot be contained. He is infinite. He is big and he is little. You see, it's not only infinitely big. You read statistics about how big the universe is. And then you read in the scriptures that he's going to fold him up like an old coat and put him in a box when he's through with it. But he's not only infinitely big, he's infinitely small. They say inner space, the atom, is more confounding now than outer space. But they see there's no boundaries. And no matter where you go, God is there. Kind of funny to go into a bar and, and, uh, and it's always all dark in there. You know, I used to live in those places. And I know and the reason to keep them dark is because you don't want anybody to know you're there. I want to go in there with all those halogen lamps and go, hello. You know, I just watch people skrsh, scurrying, scurrying. Because it's like, it's like picking up a rock, you know, and the bugs, they all run. That's what it would be like in a bar. You know, I'm serious. You want to hide. But it says in the scriptures, where can I flee from your presence? Because Daniel says in 2.22 that the darkness and the light are just alike to you. And it says in, again in Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8, Whither shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Well, ask Jonah. If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're even there. Uh, if I take the wings of the morning. I think that must have been the name of the boat Jonah got on. Wings of the morning, maybe. <laughs> If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there I find out your hand has led me, and, and your right hand shall hold me. Surely I'll say the darkness will cover me, and the night will be like a light beam right around me. See, there's no hiding from God. You see, as, as the ocean is to a fish, so is creation to God. In Him, the Bible says, we live and we move. And we have our being. And you see, he is present in every place. Now, his manifest presence is a different thing. There are some places that God's presence is not as it is in other places, such as is the human heart without Jesus. What a vacuum that place is. And it's reserved for God. But until we say yes to him, he is not there. So how can we say, I feel like I'm getting closer to God? 
What in the world do you mean by that? I mean, how can you be closer to God, I mean, when he's not measured by distance? The only way to get close to God is morally, in your character, in your, in your inner man, where you draw into a likeness, and you're changed, and that's how you draw close, not by going to church more, but by drawing near to the Lord and the inside. In him we live and move, and, and, uh, and he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, but in hearts he dwells. He's omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere, but he's also omnipotent, all-powerful. Now, when you think of power, you might think of weightlifting or hurricanes or something like that, but Psalm 62 verse 11 says, power belongs to God and no one else. All power is a derived power. We get our strength. It's derived from the food we eat. Governments get a derived power. But it says in Romans 13, 1, that there, there is no power but what is of God. The powers that be are even ordained of God. So when the intellectual stands and shakes his fist at the infidel in the face of God and says, if you're real, just, just prove it to me. I curse you to your face. And uh, the Lord could go, and just, and, his, and his, his fist would just melt right off. That'd get his attention. Listen, I heard a story. This is off my subject, but I got to tell you this. I heard a story about the university classroom. There was these godly men in a class, and this one particular science professor, he was out to get them, make them look like a fool. And there was other people in there that were, that were on the borderline of trusting the Lord, but there was these four guys in there that loved the Lord Jesus. And uh, this professor one day he says, some of you in here believe there's a God. I'll tell you. I'll put him to the test right now. God, if you're up there, then come down here and just, just kick me right now. Kick me right here, right? Come on, God, if you're real. And uh, he just bent over and he stood there and he stood up and said, Well, see, nothing happened, nothing at all. Okay, God, if you're too busy, if you're too weak, and if you're not concerned about who you are, then I'll just bend over again. Send an angel to kick me then. Don't bother yourself. Just send an angel to kick me. He just bent over. Nothing happened. He stood up again. I said, I said your last chance. If if." You're really God, then send an angel to kick me. It's now or never. And he bent over again, and one of the young men on the front row got up and just went over and just kicked me, boom, like this, and knocked the guy flat on his face. And the man got up, he was just angry as he could be. And the young man said, listen, he, he said, what are you doing, what are you doing? And the, and the young man said, listen, I'm a Christian, and I know the Lord, and he speaks to me, and he says, you weren't worthy to have an angel come kick you, so he sent me. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is too hard for thee. Nothing is too hard for thee. You see, it's just as easy for my Lord to split the Red Sea or to create the universe with poof. Just a breath of his lips. He measured the ocean in his hand, it says in Isaiah. He just swaddled the outer darkness. with. The, it's just as easy for him to blow up a whole nova and a constellation in outer space as it is for him. It's just as easy for doing that as it is to go and blow a breeze on one of our children when they're hot in the summer. Because nothing, hard is a non-real term to God because, you see, nothing is too hard. And he doesn't measure things in hard or easy because it's all easy for him. He's all-powerful. Earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, tidal waves, uh, all the things we see, it's peanuts to him when it comes in terms of power. I mean, he, he, you see, he's not even tired. 
He fainteth not. He doesn't grow weary. In all of this, he's powerful. He's, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He is eternal. That means uh, he's the eternal God, and he is our refuge, says Deuteronomy. But he has never not existed. Now, if you understand that, or think you do, you have a problem with that because there's, there's never a time, you go back in your, there's never a time when God didn't exist. Never a time. You go back, there's no beginning, there's no end. He never changes. Why? Because perfection doesn't need to change. When you're perfect, you don't change. Any change in God would be for the worse because if you're perfect, you don't need to change. Time is, is, is just history, and history is his story. Sorry, Michael Jackson, but it's history. Our Lord's, uh, Michael Jackson, his, his story. You're talking about he's in for a rude shock. He's holy. Our Lord is holy. Holy in all of his works. He is righteous in all his ways. They cry before him, holy, holy. He's of purer eyes than to look on sin. He hates that which is inconsistent with his nature and his character. He is the standard of the universe. Everything that is ultimately going to survive must conform and must be in line with his revelation and who he is. That's why they're singing around the throne today in awe, holy, holy, holy. Thou art worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, you see. And as we begin to see this host around his throne that are crying, this is too much. I remember the first time I ever really, really, by revelation, really, really got a glimpse in my soul of how big and how great and how awesome this God that had dealt with me, even an inkling, might be. I was at the beach. I, was, I, I love the beach. I just love to go down there. And I was alone. It was in the winter. I like to go down there when nobody's there. And there was this old fishing pier out on North Carolina on the beach out there. And it was a real kind of rough night. The wind was blowing. And it was kind of a, you could hear the thunder off the, off the beach out there going, kind of like a shaking an aluminum sheet way out over the, and you could, I walked out on this old fishing pier and I had my little New Testament. And there was a little light bulb. It's pitch black out there. And there's a little light bulb. I just kind of touched it and blink. It came on. I said, ooh. And I, I got my Bible and I just had a great time out there and just worshiped the Lord. And then I turned the bulb off and I went and I stood at the very furthest edge of that pier like this with my stomach pressed up against the rail, you know, so there's nothing between me and, and everything out there. And the, it was blowing. The wind, I was kind of going like this on this big old pier and the wind was shh, pushing my hair up, you know, and I just, I could smell the salt. And I looked at it, all this black silhouette of the ocean and I started thinking about all those fish out there and all those little things in coral reefs that God is managing and it was that's just a little tip and all I, I just got bigger and bigger and then the thunder started out there and it lit up the sky and what had been darkness were these great, great big clouds 50,000 feet high just flashing like a strobe light and I started seeing that and I heard the waves crashing in behind me and the wind blowing and something just came over me and I said my God what kind of a God are you and I was just overwhelmed and then this sweet, still, small voice just drifted into my heart and says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It just blew me away. It just completely blew me away. It's, uh, it's too much for me. You see, this is the fear of the Lord we're talking about. And this is what our age lacks, this fear of the Lord, this sense of awe at His majesty. And you see, after we understand these things or begin to, we would be on our face if we really understood even the, the, the part of it. You see, I wonder if in that rehearsal you left your mind behind. Because right now, we are back with this God alone. There's nothing. I mean, that's zero with the rim knocked off. Just God. And 
Before Genesis 1-1, just God. And God purposes to manifest himself. God is love, the Bible says. God is light. God is truth. God is a consuming fire. The Bible talks about this council within the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is a covenant made between the three members of the Godhead. Psalm 89 talks about it. Psalm 25 verse 14 talks about it. Hebrews uh, chapter 6 makes reference to it. But you see, and the whole first chapter of Ephesians is about it. In, in, a, in a form that only those who can understand this would understand. It actually says in Ephesians 1 that, that, there was a, that there was a purpose, as we just read, within the Godhead. The Father, He thought, He purposed this great eternal purpose. The Son promised that the purpose would come to pass. And the Spirit said, I will set my seal and will protect it. You see, the Father does everything to glorify His Son. The Son only does things by the Spirit to glorify the Father. And the Spirit teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ and to lead us into all truth to lead us to the Father. It's the Trinity in unity. Do you follow that a little? I mean, this is new to some. I, I can see your pupils going, I mean, back like this because you're saying this man is either crazy or whatever. But you see, this, God Himself, is the starting point of truth. It must be. It must be the starting point of your truth and your theology, a covenant, a counsel. It says in Psalm 25, the secret, the intimate counsel of the Lord is reserved for those who fear Him, hold Him in astonishment, and God will show to them His covenant. If you fear God and if you respect Him and hold Him in a place of high holy honor, then He will open to you what we're going to say tonight. If you don't, you won't have a clue. You may hear enough just to scare the tar out of you. But uh, you see, a council within the Godhead where God said in the Father and the Son and the Spirit, here is there's no way to get it into words. But the Scriptures make it clear. I'm going to prove it to you. There was a council, and here was God's eternal purpose before there was anything else, that He would create, get this, a vast company of sons, children. And this, this would be birthed. And this, this family that he would have would dwell with him throughout eternity and be his. And there was an oath within the Godhead. The, the, the Trinity in the Scripture speaks within itself when he says, Let us make man in our image. Let us go down and see what this tower is they've built. Who will go for us? was the question to Isaiah. And so here it is. Follow this. Before there was anything else, the Father marked out, he chose in Christ a vast family of sons and daughters for himself who would actually, get this, share the very nature of the second person of the Godhead. They would actually share his life, his spirit. They would be joint heirs together with him. They would share all things together. And God swore by his eternal existence and his very self that his purpose would stand. This is holy ground, brother. This is holy ground. His plan was to bring all things together in Christ. And nothing will turn this back. Nothing. And so this is what the Bible calls hidden wisdom. 
And I want to just give you a few scriptures so you won't think I've gone loony here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You see this. You see, the cross was in the heart of God before sin was ever in the heart of man. Revelation 13.8 says the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Figure that one out. It's what we're talking about. Before the foundation of the world. It says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says... When, when the apostle is writing about the cross and saying how that the devil would never have engineered the death of the Lord had he understood. It says in verse 8, it says, uh, verse 7, 6, pardon me. Howbeit we speak wisdom among those that are full grown, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that are coming to nothing. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained when? Before the ages, before the world to our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, the rulers, principalities, or people. For had they known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. There's hidden wisdom before the foundation of the world. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and you see again reference to this. It says in Titus chapter 1, Paul starts off, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elected ones and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Now, let me ask you, who did he promise it to? If he promised it before the world began, who did God promise it to? He promised it to his son. He promised this to his son. And that's precisely, turn back one book, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our purposes or works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to Taylor, excuse me, to us, in Christ Jesus, when? Before the world began. Before the world began. It was in the heart of God. He saw Taylor. He saw Brian. He saw those who Paul says there are his ones. I'm not getting into the fact of, of election and non-election, but I am saying this, that he knows everything from the beginning. And he has you marked out, if you're his, everything he does in time is in the light of his son, for the glory of his son. Every promise in the scripture is given to him, his son. And in him, in the Lord Jesus, every promise of God is yes, and it's amen. There's not promises really made to me apart from him except for judgment. The promises that are made to me are made in him and through him, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I'm in him, I'm a joint heir. See, if you see what I'm saying here, you know what will happen to you? It'll be very hard to keep self as the center of your life. It'll really do a work on by default. If you see what I'm saying here, you can't live with your own belly button as the center of the universe anymore. Amen. You see, get this. The starting point of the ages is the Father's heart. The Father's heart. The foundation for real love. The reason for life. The basis of peace. You see, now get this. There's a family. 
in the eternal purpose of God. They would share the nature and the likeness and the heart of the second person of the Trinity. And, uh, and now we're limited. We can't understand, but just get this. In order for these sons to be more than just robots, God doesn't want robots. In order for them to actually be like the Son, they must actually, they must love God. They must love God. They must, they must have the ability to love God and have His love in them and share in the very nature of God. I love it when you scrunch your eyebrows up like that. The only way, and now this is far short of anything God would ever say, but you imagine God saying this. The only way that I can have a family that is like-minded, that is like-natured, it, it's possible only as I reveal myself and allow them to freely love me because, you see, love, the way that God has, must be for others. Love must choose. Love must sacrifice. It's a moral responsibility, and it lays its life down. So God would have to reveal his love. He demonstrated. It says in Romans 5 that God demonstrated his love. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, you see, love is the laying down of one's existence for the ultimate benefit of another. Love is the laying down of one's very existence for the benefit and the highest good of another. Just like the first mention of love in scriptures in Genesis 22. And it says that when he's to lay down his son whom he loved, his life, Abraham, for the father. So, you see, it's clear in scripture that God foresaw Adam's sin before he ever created Adam. He knew he'd sinned. It wasn't like, oh no, he sinned now. What do we do? Like the songs say. He knew that Adam would sin. He knew the devil would fall before he created him. But his purpose swallowed it up. It was so glorious. God was willing to allow this blemish of sin to come, this pimple of unrighteousness in his great plan. He was willing to mar this thing because, you see, the cross was already in his heart before sin was ever in the heart of man. God would, would lay down his life for the unworthy sons that would be created and their highest good. And he would demonstrate his personality, his character, and his love. It's the eternal cross principle. Self-giving, self-emptying, like Philippians 2 talks about for our Lord. Y'all still with me? It's late. Hey, this doesn't make me tired. up. it doesn't make you tired. It's, it's invigorating. I, I feel like going jogging a little later. In fact, I'm going to. These sons would have to choose to love God back. They'd have to make a choice. They would have to respond to the revelation that he would give. And uh, you see, it, it cost God who he was to love us. So if you're going to love God back, it's going to cost you who you are. Because you see, you can only love him because he first loved you. And you can only forgive others because he first forgave you. He's the great initiator. He's the first cause, and he's the last answer of every single thing. And so how do I love God back? I've got to lay down who I think I am and who I've always been for his highest glory and his highest good and his purposes. So listen carefully. 
You see, they would love him back, this family, because he first loved them. And so, in that moment, we're still back before Genesis 1-1, Jesus received the necessary commandment from his Father, whom he had chosen to become servant to. It says in Philippians 2 that he was the servant of Jehovah before he ever was found in fashion as a man. He said, I will serve this purpose. He was going to demonstrate the truth about God and the love of God and lay his life down in sacrificial obedience. He became the servant of Jehovah. God's eternal purpose was sealed. All of this before Genesis 1.1. Now we have a problem. Because nothing else exists. And so we need a stage to have this great drama to happen upon. We need somewhere to manifest this love. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and an arena, a great coliseum, you might say, for everybody to look that could look, all intelligences. And so man began and God allowed sin to come in. He, he it grieved him. And you see, he judged the world. He showed all that we showed about the law. But in the fullness of time, this is what God had in mind, the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4, God sent forth his son made of a woman according to the law that he had given. And the eternal word of God, the everlasting from the beginning, he had always been with God, he'd been God. He was truth and grace revealed among us. He, He became flesh. The word became flesh into history. He stepped and he emptied himself of his glory, it says in Philippians 2, and poured himself into woman's seed into a virgin's womb. Fully God, amazing grace, but fully man, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, I'm told by some doctors, some disagree, but I don't believe the ones that disagree because my spirit tells me it's true. In fact, it's in the nurses' handbooks on obstetrics and others that a fetus gets its chromosome determinant of what blood type is going to be in that fetus from the father's sperm. And the blood types never mix, the mother and the child. If it does, it can be toxic. RH factor is a, there's a doctor right here, and I don't know whether you think this is true or not. Maybe you never thought about it. But if I was RH positive, my mom is negative or something, she always had a big time with me. When I was born, I almost killed her, even then. And, uh, and, and you see, God, if that's true, then if the sperm determines the blood type, then whose blood was in the Lord Jesus? It says in Acts 20, the blood of God. Take care of the church that he's purchased with his own blood. Precious blood, incorruptible blood, not the stain of sin. Can you imagine the scene in heaven the night that the Lord Jesus was actually birthed out of a birthing canal of a peasant woman? Uh, He became a man and, and the humility that the infinite became an infant. The ancient of days became a child of time. He who who measured the stars in the sky by blowing them out of his hand and put the ocean there. He is now reduced to where his little hand is gripped around Mary's pinky. And he who spoke and the universe roared into existence, he is now reduced to the cooing of a child. Can't even speak. You think Jesus didn't have diapers like everybody else? Of course he did. And he's condescending to have a woman change his diapers and she's singing songs to him and... uh, and I imagine that, that it's an awesome thing as you realize that he who upholds all things by the word of his power is reduced to a baby's cooing. And nobody on earth knew it was happening. 
Only a few shepherds at that time. It's, it's condescension. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why he did it. This is love coming down. This is love coming down right to where I can get my hands on it and see and understand. And he wanted me to see that I can trust a God like that. You know, if I went out in my yard, I hate fire ants. My, I walked through. I, I was standing there talking to somebody. I felt something run up my leg. I looked down. All these little creatures were up my pants. My kids thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I'm dancing through the front yard. I hate fire ants. But let's suppose I had a change of heart. And I said, I'm going I'm to be their friend. I mean, you know, fire ants need friends. They don't have many. And so I, go, so, so I go out in the front yard, and I say, okay, guys, no more diazinon. It's going to be friends from now on. I've hated you up till now because you've been against me, but I'm going to be your friend. And I come over, boom, boom. And all the little ants would run down in there. I say, come on, guys, don't you believe me? See, I'm awesome to a fire ant. I am very intimidating to a fire ant. You know, they, they'll never believe me. I mean, I couldn't do anything, but let's suppose I could become a fire ant. I might, you know, and do the, what fire ants are supposed to do and do it right. And I mean, I might get their attention. But I tell you what, for me to become a fire ant is nothing because I'm a created being and they're created. But for God, the infinite one, to become an infant son, for the, crea the, crea the creator become the created in a sense, for him to become into a body is absolutely overwhelming and a condescension of amazing grace altogether. Here's the messenger of the everlasting covenant. He's the Malachi, the messenger of the covenant, will come suddenly to his temple. It says in Malachi, which means messenger. He will come, and he did come into Bethlehem. And look at John's gospel. Look at John chapter 6. And if you understand what I've just said, you'll, you'll see this language peeking out. Stay with me a few more moments. I'm almost through. But I want you to see the language of our Lord Jesus peeking out from eternity past. Just right through his words in John's gospel. In John chapter 6, verse 37, the Lord Jesus, he's saying to his own, he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And him that comes to me, I will never throw aside. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Seventy times it says in John's gospel, sent, sent. He was sent from the Father. When were these ones given to him? When were they? Before the foundation of the world. He came down from heaven to seek and to save that which had been given to him. And uh, you see the truth then in John chapter 10 as he goes on. And, and he says in John chapter 10, verse 18, look at this omnipotent language again. He's standing in front. He, he, he's coming and talking and he stands in front uh, talking about his death. He says in verse 18, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When did he receive it? I've just told you. And this awesome commandment, look at John chapter 12, verse 49. This is the kind of God we need, a big God. Not a little man-managed God, but a God that we can't control. You either get right with Him or you're out in the rain. John chapter 12, verse 49, it says, Jesus said, I have not spoken of my own initiative, but the Father who sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know this is the commandment, life everlasting. 
Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said to me, I'm speaking. I'm saying what I heard before the foundation of the world. Look at 1431. 1431, he says it again. He says, listen, that the world may know that I love that, that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me a commandment, even so I do. Arise and let's go. John chapter 18, look at that. He's standing before Pilate, and Pilate's grilling him and saying, who are you really? And Pilate uh, asks him a question, and he says, what have you done to stand before me? And in verse 36 of John 18, Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And he says, to this end I was born. And for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth, not just to seek and save the lost, but to reveal the truth about who God is and all the love of the Father, and everyone that's of the truth will hear my voice. You know what happened? He is in the garden. He prays. Look at John 17. This is the most phenomenal thing tonight. He'd used covenant language. He said, I must be about my Father's business. I must work the works of Him that sent me. Even thus it must be. The Son of Man must go as it's determined. You with wicked hands took this son, but it was predetermined by the Father, says Peter in Acts chapter 2. Listen to the language of the Lord Jesus as he, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, it's called, he's alone, praying before he's arrested, alone, and he looks up, verse 1, these words spoke Jesus. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. What hour is that? This is the great hour that the Son of Man would give his life as an atonement. Glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. I know that this is life eternal, that they might know thee. That's God's plan, to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work. He's going to the cross. I finished the work you gave me to do. Now look at this. Verse 4. Verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. He's getting ready to go back to where he came from. And with all the glory of the Father. Covenant language, he prays. And look what he prays for you and me. Verse 24. Father, you put your name in here. Father, I will that they, we in this room, we're in this verse. We're included in this verse. He's praying for us. Father, I will that they also, the ones you've given to me, be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory, which you have given me. And... You loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Have you ever known that? Like you know it in this moment? I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it. So that, here's what God wants for you and for me, this family of lovers, 
that's like-natured, like-spirited, like-minded, like-hearted, conformed to his image, group of family-born sons, he said that the love wherewith you have loved me might be in them and I in them. That's what Christ prayed for you and for me, that the love of God that energized and was his Father's presence in his heart would be in your heart and in my heart. And so he was arrested, and he was nailed to the cross, as you know. And he was obedient unto death. And he was crucified for my transgressions to show me how far love would go. Can you imagine the one who created the waters with parched lips hanging on a cross in the sun? sunburning, with whip marks all over him and excrement maybe thrown on him that people would do as they mocked crucified, crucified people, the one who sends the rains, the one who controls the floods and the rivers, hanging with cracked lips saying, I thirst. Can you imagine that? You see, he did this and it was raised from the dead to prove that he was who he said he was so that you and I would say to him gladly, I want to love you back. I want to love you back. No cost would be too great for me because you left all you were for me. You showed me how to do it. You showed me a pattern. You showed me not only a pattern of how I was going to be sent once I came to you, but you showed me what it meant to deny yourself and lay down all that you were for my ultimate good. Now I want to do the same, but I have no power so, Lord, let that prayer be answered, that the love that was in you be in me and that your spirit would be in me, that I might have the grace to, to be changed into the image and be formed, that I might be called. We started off with this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon me, that I should be called a child of God. A child of God. It doesn't yet appear what I will be, but I know this, that I am a child of God right now. And I know that when he appears, that I'll be like him. He will make me exactly changed into his glorious body. We'll be part of him. We'll be joined to him, one. And until that day, I have this assurance. And having this assurance, I purify myself because I want to be ready to meet him. And I want to be ready to bring him honor and glory and not be ashamed when he appears. I want to love him with all my heart. I'm captured by love. My thoughts have been brought into obedience. My will is no longer my own, as Paul said. And so he wants me to say, I'm yours forever. Some of you are here tonight, and you've never said that. You've come here, and you know all about him. You've been in church, but you've never said, I choose your covenant. I choose by the supernatural grace of your spirit, according to your promise to Jesus, to receive from your hand everlasting life. You can give it to me. This life is not me living forever. It's you living in me, the life, the real life, coming to live in me. And I'm daring at this moment to do what I've never done before, and that's lay down my own independent life. You did that. As God, you laid it down for me, who you are. And so now I see it's safe to do because I see your character. I see omnipotence. I see glorious. I see all that you are. And it's safe to trust you. And Lord, I lay down all that I am now. And I trust you to work a miracle in me in response to your character and your revelation. Lord, you cut an everlasting covenant for me with the Heavenly Father. And you're my guarantee. The Father, according to your word, would have to put Jesus back into the ground. 
before he could break his word to complete the work in every person that he begins a work in. He will lose nothing. He will perform it. He has purposed it so. He has forever demonstrated his heart. And the angels are in amazement. They see this great work. They desire to look into it, it says in Peter. And when they see a wretch like me, April the 2nd, 1972, an old drunk come up to a church altar and fall on my face, uh, actually escorted up there with this divorced woman I was living with. She escorted me to the altar trying to help me out. She was lost, and I fell on my face, and the angels didn't say, what a wonderful sinner. He's believing on Jesus. Oh, no. They said, how could it be that you could save him? Oh, glory. And they took, oh, thou art worthy to receive. You have washed him in your blood. You have saved him, and you've made him as white as snow in your sight. He's righteous. And they praised him because every promise of God by the blood of the Lamb became mine. Every word of God became real to, to you and to everyone that trusts him like that. And now it says in Romans 8, that all the universe is the word in the Greek. They're on tiptoe. They're just like this. They're just waiting. They're waiting because they know that this thing is about to come to closure. The Son of God is about to come back to this earth. Prophecies are like lightning being fulfilled all around us. And even in Paul's day, it says, we know that all creation right now is standing on tiptoe, just waiting for the manifestation of the redemption of the sons of God. And the Spirit of God in our hearts is crying like the Holy Ghost dove sent out, wants to go back saying, Abba, Father, a cry of anguish. Make it happen. Complete your work in me, Lord. And the angels are marveling. And they'll never get over it that he saved me and he saved people who don't deserve it. What a solid rock on which to rest. You see, a covenant within the Godhead. Before the universe was created concerning you, he knew you. You. He knew. He didn't learn about you when you were born. You were born because he knew about you. He had it all planned out. And what an amazing pillow to put your head on. He imparts to me. Get this. This is real. This is not just words. I mean, I just want to talk to you, Taylor, for a minute. Jesus Christ puts in you not just the idea, but the actual nature that you see in here. He supernaturally, by God's creative power, the same power that made the universe out there, it says, in your spirit, he actually, by his spirit, comes to live and puts into your mind and in your heart his very love, his very nature, his very thoughts as you let your own puny life go. How could we hold on to our life? How could we think that what we think is more important or what we know is more right? God swore by an oath in eternity past. He demonstrated this covenant in time. He backed it by every possible promise. He sealed it with, a with the blood of the second person of the Trinity. He's given the earnest of the Holy Spirit into the Spirit as living proof of every believer and the assurance that he that began the good work and you will complete it until the Lord Jesus finishes it. And God's eternal purpose is that I would be a lover. Not the sentimental kind of sloppy agape, but the lover like you see in the Gospels. The lover sent as Jesus was sent. And that's God's plan for me. And so it may be hard. But let me tell you what. He didn't have an easy way. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
He despised the shame. And all things in him are promised, and whatsoever is not in him one day will be discarded. My final thought is this. How could I say no to a God like that? How could I say no to a God like this? Why should I hold anything back? Why should I say I'm just too busy? I might affect my job. This should melt the doubts and the tears of every reluctant soul. Whom shall I fear if God is for me? Who can be against me? And let me just say, to reject this is pure insanity. It is pure insanity. And I tell you what, it says, whoever believes on him will have eternal life. But whoever doesn't believe on him, the wrath of God already abides upon him. To reject such a demonstration by omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God, revealing himself in time and through eternity, is to bring upon yourself the peril that is beyond thought. What more can he say, as the song says? What else can he do? What more do I need? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon me. That, that he, would, he would say, you're a son of God. I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers because he's put into us the very spirit of God. But we must respond to him worthily. And so the great mystery is this. I do not understand this, brothers. How could a God like that give me the privilege when the Holy Spirit says to me, that I could say to him, yes, Lord. What a privilege to respond to God in absolute abandonment. God's eternal purpose is a family. And right now, my family is to be a picture of that family where I give myself for them like we heard. And I make it like framed after his family. And that's what he wants, to make me so full of this love and this that I just capture it in my own little family right here, what he's done in the bigger family. But we've got to say yes for him. And that's how to enter into the experience of God's love. So I pray tonight that you'll take this word. I don't know how to apply this word to us except to say, what's he want from you? What's he want from you? What kind of response does a word like this demand? What, I mean, what does it warrant that, that he could show to us? If you've seen this, I mean, what's What's holding me back? What's holding you back? Why aren't we just jumping up and down on our seats saying glory to God in the highest? I just want to bow our heads for a moment. Lord, I pray right now that you'll let us experience in our spirit what's really going on in the throne room of God. All around us in this room, there are invisible intelligences. There are those spirits that have plagued our home. There are those deceiving, dark beings that have led us astray and fooled us, seducing spirits into stupidities that we have believed in the past, doctrines of demons and foolishness of the flesh. And they've led us around like a bull with a ring in our nose. But, Lord, you have shown yourself to us. The light has dispelled the darkness. And to many in this room, you are saying, I want it all. We have been tokenizing you, giving you a bit here and a bit more there. But tonight you say, no more tipping God. I want it all. I want you to abandon yourself in a worthy manner. I want you to love me back like I loved you all. And I will put into you what you have been hearing about, 
This weekend, I will put the very love of the Holy Spirit, the love of God, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. The Spirit of His Son sent into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and leading us into all the truth and witnessing through us that it is no more the flesh man but the spiritual resurrected Christ that now lives and reigns in our being. And so, Lord Jesus, now would you take what is yours by creation? Would you take what is yours by purchase of blood? May you take what is yours by the ultimate gift right now, consent of a heart that says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. May there be a ravishing of hearts tonight. I want to encourage you not to try to be religious here or have some token show in your own life. But I want to just say, God wants a worthy response. For you, I don't know what that is. But I believe that in a solemn moment, very serious, because God is definitely marking it down. He will honor the yes. Would you be willing to say yes to him? Don't do it lightly. To say yes to him who we've described tonight, who has all power, is there anything too hard for me? Would you be willing to fall on your face before him and to say, yes, no more hesitation, no more holding back. Bring me in to the eternal majesty of who you are in a way I've never known and open to me the scriptures and equip me by your nature and character, to be the very Son of God you've planned for me to be. Before the foundation of the world, I say yes to you. You've allowed me to say yes to you. And I do say yes to you, gladly, gladly. Not reluctantly like, oh, poor me, but thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being a son of God.